0: This is the Lean Discovery Applied Podcast with Clinton Sanko, Baker Donaldson's e-discovery officer. In season one of Sitting with the C-Suite, Clinton and guests will explore the e-discovery industry's past, present, and future, largely through the eyes of the executives responsible for the technology and services underlying virtually every e-discovery project.
1: Hello, I'm Clinton Sanko, and welcome to the Lean Discovery Applied series, Sitting with the C-Suite, where we are committed to unraveling e-discovery one interview at a time. Today, we are joined by Mandy Ross, CEO of Prism Litigation Technology and Insight Optics, LLC, where she also acts as the chief evangelist of operationalizing proportionality for better results. Join me in welcoming Mandy to the show.
2: Thank you, Clinton. Thanks for having me. Why don't
1: we start by just telling us a little bit about Prism Litigation Technology, the company and the services.
2: Sure. Prism was actually the second company that I started in 1997, headquartered out of Chicago. And in the earlier stages of the company's history, I actually built that business to about 100 employees. And we really kind of had two major lines of business, if you will. The first revolved around transactional services which back in the 90s still involved automation of paper, which included scanning and objective and subjective coding. And then subsequently, we ended up getting into e-discovery processing and hosting. But in tandem with the transactional services, we always had a consulting division that was staffed by attorneys and paralegals. And our objective with that division was that we really believed that in order for technology to be successfully deployed, You also needed to have the right combination of best practices and staff. And so the job of that division was to really provide assistance to our clients throughout the discovery process. Certainly at that time, a lot of it revolved around linear review um, as well as privilege type things. And then, of course, deposition and pretrial work. Um, Over time, we evolved more so into an e discovery advisory firm we saw that a lot of companies were now coming into the transactional side of the business and so we made a conscientious decision to actually switch focus and deal more with the complexities of e discovery so we've been operating in the trenches with legal teams for the last two decades we understand the complexities and challenges of e discovery and we specialize in providing services from legal hold early case assessment preservation and collection through review and production Uh, Our team uh, is comprised of legal technologists, um, attorneys and paralegals, and data scientists, and we provide both the advisory services as well as court-appointed e-discovery liaison services.
1: I remember the days of subjective coding and objective coding where there was like a room of coders that just sat there and coded all the paper, and that's how you would actually make your polls for deposition long before the days of uh, you know uh, e-discovery tools where you could run searches based on the content. Given um, that background on Prism, tell us now a little bit about the company and the services that is Insight Optics.
2: Inside Optics was a bit of a happy accident, but uh, Insight Optics is the company that actually owns Evidence Optics, which is a technology-enabled workflow that operationalizes proportionality, uh, providing legal teams with a defensible, transparent approach to right-size discovery early. Uh, We do that by organizing and ranking the custodians to the claims and defenses of a matter while quantifying the burden and effort of collection relating to unique relevant data sources. And ultimately those two rankings inform a few things, but certainly it enables us to build hypothetical scenarios where we can pick and choose certain custodians and data sources and immediately see the cost implications of moving that data from preservation and collection through review and production and so inevitably what we've been able to do is give lawyers a tool where early on in the process they can really look to constructing a discovery strategy that aligns to the merits of the case and from a standpoint of building both your internal discovery scoping plan uh, engaging with other parties from a standpoint of negotiation or 26f preparations or um, involving the court, if judicial intervention is needed, this framework really gives lawyers a roadmap to demonstrate that they're leveraging proportionality.
1: Looking at both PRISM and Insight Optics, Mandy, what's the mix, the ratio, if you will, of clients that are corporate-based clients that retain you versus law firm-based clients that may engage you for your services?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And it's actually, it's interesting that you asked me that. So with the traditional e-discovery advisory services before evidence optics and the emphasis on proportionality, our sweet spot on the law firm side was traditionally with the law firms that didn't have any e-discovery infrastructure. And so inherently we would come in as an adjunct to the legal team to provide whatever support they needed around all things e-discovery. And in the context of e-discovery services on the corporate side, You know, when we were retained by the corporations, it would be either for a particular engagement where we were the conduit between um, organizing things on the corporate side and also engaging with outside counsel. Uh, We also, in our earlier years, did a lot of MSAs where we were handling all of the discovery automation and all of the orchestration around review and budgeting. But interestingly, now that we've moved into this proportionality lane, Um, the dynamics have changed a little bit on the corporate side uh, what we're hearing from the corporations that are that are engaging with us is they really want to come up with mechanisms that enable them to streamline the discovery process and obviously scope discovery. And certainly now in this current economic climate, I think we've always been talking about budget in the context of discovery spend, but it seems as though Clinton, the needle is moving from a standpoint of this really being an area to which corporations are hypersensitive right now. And then on the law firm side, because there are a number of firms like yours that have a real specialty in both e-discovery advisory services or firms that are really leveraging technology In the practice of law, we have found that the evidence optics offering is of interest to firms in that particular space because they, of course, are always looking for innovative, disruptive ways to leverage technology in the practice of law.
1: So, would it be fair to assume then that to use evidence optics, you don't necessarily have to use your consulting services. You can buy the software as a standalone service offering that anybody could use, even if they're not choosing to use your consultancy services. So, it's opening up, if you will, a bit of a different client base than maybe you historically had served.
2: Yes, absolutely. You know, certainly anybody that's in the business of providing discovery services would be a candidate that would be interested in this. You know, there are a lot of alternative legal service providers. Law firms and consultancies that have managed review arms and to your point, they're already in the consulting space. So, yes, this is an adjunct, to the traditional services that they would perform, but it gives them an opportunity to engage with the clients prior to preservation and collection. And so, ultimately, there is a benefit for them to, to build a more strategic relationship earlier in the process that ultimately, of course, is going to reduce spend and target discovery.
1: So, before we, we unpack that a little bit, Mandy, i like to start with some background on you so that our listeners can get to know you and your history a little bit better. And it stood out to me, you've been in e-discovery consulting really since before the E was in the discovery, if you will, and before e-discovery was really even a thing. I'm looking at a 35-year discovery history. So you before you started leading PRISM, in 1997 you held a number of roles both at law firms and within corporations that had a discovery uh, focus both as a network administrator trainer paralegal at, the, at a Detroit law firm and other positions as you look at the early years of e-discovery if you think back to the zuba lake series of opinions and the rules changes where this really hit everybody's consciousness in a real way at that point in time and at that point in history. As you look back at that time, that mid-2000s when things were really uncertain, is there anything that stands out to you as a veteran about a problem that existed then that still persists as an issue in today's world in the same or a similar fashion? Any similarities there that you see in terms of problems?
2: Well, taking it back a little further than that, um, the first case that I automated in 1986, which was a drug products liability case when I was working as a paralegal, was the result of a pleading that went out from the plaintiff's side to various pharmaceutical companies with any and all provisions. And we got any and all. Back then, we got half a million pages. So even in the early parts of my career, we still saw that discovery was incredibly broad and burdensome. the rules always intended discovery to be reasonable and aligned to the claims and defenses. And yet, even after the rule amendments in 2015, we still see this tendency to um, over preserve, over collect and process, which ultimately means that you have larger volumes of data that's either marginally relevant or not relevant, moving downstream to the more expensive stages of discovery. So, although the 2015 amendments to the federal rules really intended to kind of re-emphasize proportionality in litigation, I still think that the time and energy that's dedicated to discovery often does not align to the merits of the case.
1: So, the need to right-size the discovery to the merits is a problem that existed way back in the early days and persists through today, even after the proportionality amendments.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And while certainly there are firms that really understand how to leverage proportionality, I would say generally for practitioners that are outside of the e-discovery bubble, they really have struggled with taking proportionality from a concept to an actionable process.
1: Before you were at PRISM, you were vice president of CIARA, which you described in your bio as one of the earliest litigation support firms. Tell us a little bit about that company and what it offered in terms of services and technology.
2: Sure. Well, that was really right when the litigation support field was launching. I had gone in-house at the third biggest firm in Detroit as their first litigation support manager in 1990. And as part of that experience, I started to engage with providers who had historically been in the copy space who were now moving into automation of paper evidence. And that was right when summation DOS was coming on the scene. And what I what I observed was that the vendors did not understand the litigation process, nor did they understand the discovery uh, workflows, if you will. And so often from a standpoint of engaging with them, I felt as though there was a disconnect in their understanding of how I was going to actually use that content. And so that really was the catalyst that uh, led me to the decision to start Sierra in 1992 with a partner. And when we started, our goal was simple. We provided the transactional services around coding and imaging, which we've already touched upon. And we also had that consulting. Um, division that was staffed by attorneys and paralegals. Um, so we were one of the first people on the scenes where some of the new technology came into play. Just wanted to give you a couple for, for the sake of going down memory lane. You know, certainly summation uh, concordance live note and case map. Um, were are all kind of up there at the beginning, uh, but I have to say that uh, as far as my entree into lit support, the, the memory that I think I value the most was an opportunity that we had very early on where we were working with Brent Sandstrom who actually developed the first trial presentation product. And it was called Trialink express and he has now since developed trial director, which, as you know, is, is a very well established brand, but we were actually using this technology in a trial in Wayne County while the software was still being developed. Which in hindsight was probably a fairly brave move, but I do have to say, looking back and realizing that we were kind of on the bleeding edge of the infancy of trial presentation and and kind of where that has evolved um, based on where we sit today is, I guess, a memory and part of my career that I that I really uh, value.
1: You mentioned summation, there were, there were lawyers and paralegals pining for summation years and years afterwards, because people loved that experience they had with one of those first versions of summation. But you've mentioned, you mentioned Detroit, and I know that you have some uh, significant connections to the greater Detroit area. What part or what percentage of this early experience was really based on those automobile products liability cases that really were a precursor, if you will, to the big e-discovery projects of, of today?
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, I am from Detroit originally. I, I'm a, I love cars as an aside, but all things automotive have certainly been the core focus for both Sierra and for prism. You know, we've had a footprint in the Detroit market since 1992 and you're right that early on. Um, it did revolve a, ro- a lot around products liability in the automotive sector. That case that I alluded to in the 80s was also products, but it was drug pharma. But in the context of automotive, in addition to products, you know, certainly we've seen a lot of class actions, uh, governmental investigations, including second requests and DOJ investigations, and absolutely a lot going on in relation to contracts, intellectual property, and then uh, corporate theft. But the other thing I wanted to touch on outside of automotive, as far as kind of trends early on was that environmental and asbestos litigation, excuse me, were very, very um, uh, predominant at that point in time. Our largest paper case that we handled, which was an asbestos class action out in California was about 8 million pieces of very dusty, crusty paper that we had to automate. Um, And then we also had the opportunity to work with pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies and retail companies providing that oversight of review that I mentioned earlier.
1: I was just sitting here thinking as you were talking Mandy about how we used to in the old uh, in the early days of e discovery you would look to those types of cases the big paper cases as the corollaries or parallels that you would be drawing when you were talking about the e discovery burdens when you were trying to educate a court so it was just it was causing me a, a little bit of a trip down memory lane there as you were as you were going through those different different categories so of course you're the chief executive officer and managing director and uh, according to your website you've led quote, thousands of successful engagements for law firm firms and corporate law departments. And you gave us a great overview of what Prism does in response to my first question. Just walk us through an example of how you're doing what you call smarter e-discovery and leveraging that, the available technology, proportionality arguments. Budgeting, estimating—you've you, mentioned several times—how how you focus your efforts around that, and what the theory of your uh, of your services are as you approach a corporate client with these e-discovery needs and and a need to do to do things well.
2: Well, right. I mean, after we moved out of the transactional services, you know, we were pure advisory, so we don't offer processing or hosting services. And so, before proportionality became one of our focuses. We were really focused on early scoping and targeting and understanding the story within the data. And in order for us to accomplish that, um, not only did we leverage uh, advanced search mechanisms, which we call language based analytics. uh, But we also focused on data minimization techniques and anything we could do to accelerate the review workflow. Um, Now, the language based narrative approach that I mentioned is 1 that's been around for quite some time. Kate O'Brien is part of our team and um, she does a a stellar job of putting together um, a search term strategy that truly aligns to the claims and defenses or the issues that are at stake. And so that has been an incredibly valuable service that we've been able to offer, not only in the context of negotiating on behalf of a particular party, but we're often asked to um, step in as an e-discovery liaison to help negotiate search terms. Now, moving that forward and looking at where we are today, um, especially with the advances in index in place, we're now able to take those sophisticated search term workflows that align to the claims and defenses. And we can now use that with index in place to really create a foundation early to understand the story that the data tells, as well as being able to find relevant content for early case assessment or sampling or review needs. Um, And so we were able to take this framework, just to give you a real life example, this was earlier this year, took it from 600,000 documents um, to 9,500 direct hits in three days, which was a reduction of over 92%. And so I think that clearly kind of states the value associated with trying to really target and scope discovery to get to the content that really matters.
1: language-based analytics with Kate O'Brien has definitely been around a long time. And the key point of that always as an outside trial lawyer is Kate wasn't just looking at overall finding a document. It was what particular language in that document made it responsive. What was the important language that you were looking for that actually made that document bubble up to the top? And tracking that and then using that um, as a feedback loop for the search term analysis is is a really remarkable uh, process that that she goes through and has been around for a number of years.
2: Yes, I agree. That's why we're glad to have her as part of our team.
1: <laughs> you know, um, Mandy, you mentioned uh, that you were at Prism vendor agnostic in a lot of ways that you didn't uh, offer the hosting and processing services. So that allows you to go out and find, quote, high quality litigation support vendors, end quote, that you look at in the marketplace to match uh, with the right clients for their e-discovery needs. And you have a long history of this in 2009, for instance, you partnered with. Matterspace for evidence lifecycle management. In 2010, you partnered with Legal Hold Pro uh, from Zap Approved to track uh, legal holds uh, for those that aren't familiar with that product. And you've mentioned uh, X1 a few times for their Distributed discovery searching, uh, the ability to search in place, and we're going to unpack that in a few minutes. I noticed that you uh, even did a CLE in 2009. This was one of my one of my favorite things that we found. Uh, it was entitled "Is Your Litigation Support System Stuck in the 80s?" Meaning the 1980s. For those of you uh, that that can't see the see the language to to make that connection, and you were covering how to analyze changing e-discovery technology platforms a decade ago, right? So, walk our listeners through as you look at the legal tech marketplace, how you go through analyzing and putting potential new vendors through their paces. What is it that you do to look at them, and what are the particular factors that you've honed in on?
2: Well, we're always looking for new disruptive ways to improve the various stages of the EDRM or the litigation lifecycle. You know, I think as a company in our space, we have an obligation to our clients to stay up to date on the technology front. And so we're always looking for ways to improve that deliverable. Um, As far as our approach, we have a pretty well established process around not only evaluating products, um, kicking the tires very thoroughly in a proof of concept setting and performing various uh, testing before onboarding any technology solutions for client use. Uh, I think with some of the transactional vendors, although we have relationships, you know they have a very heavy investment in their standard infrastructure and i think being product agnostic with the exception of evidence optics now which is a little bit contradictory we have the ability to be much more nimble because of the fact that we can embrace and 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 deploy technology um when needed uh when a particular need arises
1: for those Folks out there that are busy in-house counsel or busy trial lawyers, how would you suggest to them how they would get a hold of and understand the marketplace that's out there? And as they look at new technologies, how how do they keep a pace with what's going on in legal tech generally or with eDiscovery more specifically?
2: Well, look, lawyers are busy and they don't necessarily have the time or the desire, to be honest, (laughs) to become experts in technology, present company excluded, of course. Um, But, you know, there are advisory firms and there are law firms out there that really have a core competency in this area. And so I would encourage lawyers who don't have familiarity in this space, you know, to align themselves with people in the field that really do have this expertise. just as a doctor engages with a specialist when necessary, I think practitioners should be ready to engage with experts when we have technological challenges. And I think you and I both know, you know, e-discovery is not necessarily easy. I mean, there can definitely be some complexities and nuances that are potential pitfalls that can get people into trouble. But for people that do want to broaden their horizons and get more acclimated to the industry, Uh, Certainly, there are a number of educational webinars, conferences, and certifications that you could undertake to bolster your um, expertise and your credentials. And then there are a number of professional networks, both at the lawyer level and with organizations such as ACEDS and EDRM, where you really can network with peers, learn a lot of things based on the things that they're doing, and then also build your professional network in the e-discovery space.
1: So you've mentioned proportionality several times. And as we unpack and look at the evidence optics software, uh, I, I reviewed an October 14th, 2020 video that you had submitted or uh, the company had submitted to Georgetown Law Executive in Continuing Legal Education. And you stressed the need in that video for proportionality to be based on what you called a quantifiable burden, which this uh, software as a service Base Discovery Workflow uh, software package focuses on, uh, and that's part of your Judge Judge Tank submission. Walk us through how it actually works in practice. What's required as far as the inputs, and then what are the outputs that the legal team gets just focusing on that evidence optics software package?
2: So this is an attorney-directed, technology-driven workflow that facilitates decision-making and analysis. So ultimately, the early part of the assessment is an interview mechanism that allows the attorneys not only to establish a ranking around the custodian's relevancy, but also to create a scoring rank that correlates with the burden and effort of various data sources. And the third facet that's, that's equally important is the delineation between actually determining whether a data source is unique and relevant to the matter at hand. Is often not something that a custodian necessarily understands. So, ultimately, um, what is learned from those interviews around those 2, 2 or 3 data points becomes the foundation for the output. And there's a couple of things that we generate on the output side. First and foremost, hypothetical scenarios that can be constructed that allow us to build cost assumptions based on the workflow that's being deployed, because there are different ways that you may choose to approach review or other aspects of the process. But ultimately, it gives you information as to what it would cost to move a data source from preservation and collection through review and production. And then the other outputs that it generates is a heat map where it organizes the custodians and the data sources based on their appropriate relevance and burdensome ranking. So, we very much understand where the low hanging fruit or the center of the bullseye is from a standpoint of where you might want to start your discovery strategy and exchange. And then lastly, there's written documentation that demonstrates the work product that was constructed in the early parts of the process. And so this is the reporting that can be used not only for internal decisioning around the scope of discovery, but it can also be used in the context of negotiation. And lastly, It would be the documentation that you would take to court if, in fact, judicial intervention was needed in relation to an argument around quantifying proportionality.
1: Can you share with us a little bit about what the Judge Tank submission was and any news that you could share on that front?
2: Well, yes, actually, we were we were we found out a week or so ago that we were selected as 1 of 4 participants. This is the 1st judge tank that's being done as part of the Georgetown conference. The 1st year, it's going to be done virtually for obvious reasons and the focus of this initiative was to identify innovative ideas that could be leveraged in discovery. And so with our proportionality workflow being the first of its kind, as far as a technology-enabled approach, we're really looking forward to uh, getting the reaction and the feedback from this very esteemed panel of judges.
1: Mandy, I always ask the why question when you're looking at a piece of software that a company chooses to develop and go into the marketplace with. In your case, your product was officially launched on October 10, 2019, and it was billed as, quote, the first saas based workflow that systematically quantifies the effort and burden of discovery to substantiate proportionality arguments End quote, what did you see in the marketplace that caused you to go? We need this software. This development needs to happen. And there's a market for this. What was it particularly out there at that point or whenever you started development? Maybe it wasn't in October, 2019, but what, what caused you to enter the marketplace with a, with a software offering like this?
2: Well, like I mentioned earlier, it was, it was really a bit of an accident. Um, We back in 2014, we were working on a series of cases where we had a high number of custodians all over the world. And so we had a client problem to solve and being an advisory firm, you know, we're always going to look at creative ways to solve problems, but essentially we wanted to come up with a mechanism where we could leverage technology early. So that we could evaluate and scope discovery with an eye towards. Prioritization and reduction of both custodians and data sources prior to collection. So, we went out in the market looking for something that would give us a tool that the attorneys could use to engage with the custodians and and document these centralized informed decisions. And realized pretty quickly that there was a gap between legal hold and preservation and collection. And so, consequently, we decided to build it. Uh, In relation to these case engagements, so that we could enable this workflow and it was really an interesting time because after seeing it in action and realizing the level of reduction in custodians and data sources. You know, coupled with our ability to target and prioritize our discovery efforts. We really recognized at that point in time that we could expand this to actually come up with a framework around proportionality. Bobby Basile, who is one of my partners in Insight Optics, uh, was actually on WG1 working on the proportionality initiative um, around the same time. And so she and I had a number of conversations, and that was really the precursor for us making a decision that we wanted to come into the market with a solution that was focused on scoping discovery and leveraging proportionality. And so I think we've been able to bring a solution to the problem that kind of takes proportionality from a concept to a reality.
1: And for those of you that don't know, Bobby Basiles with HBR Consulting, it does a lot of work with corporations and law firms, particularly around tracking costs and really understanding where the money's being spent and um, really understanding estimates and budgeting around e-discovery. So we've had a lot of recent events, obviously, Mandy, with COVID, and you did a great written interview with Doug Austin of eDiscovery Today at the end of September 2020. I read it and I'd recommend it to our listeners. It's a great background on you and a lot of your thinking. And I did have one follow-up question from that interview. You had noted that, and specifically around COVID in a lot of ways, that the, quote, challenge for corporations to manage the convergence of data uh, existing both in the context of an employee's business life as well as their personal life on mobile devices will need to be addressed, end quote. Here you're talking about information governance and obviously with work from home, with us having these devices that are these powerful supercomputers in our pocket on which we do both our personal business as well as our, as our corporate business, noting that need for figuring out how a corporation's gonna partition off those two and maintain control and access of the corporate information as part of their information governance IG uh, strategies. Unpack your meeting here uh, around that from your standpoint and what technology you see addressing that in the marketplace more specifically.
2: Well certainly there are a lot of applications out there that are dealing with MDM and, and other things relating to mobile devices but I think the distinction in my mind was what you just alluded to which is the fact that especially now in this current environment there absolutely is a co-mingling of business communications and personal communications and of course in that capacity if we're talking about an employee with their own personal device then it's even it either it even further blurs the complication because there's a custody and control issue there as well. So I was talking about Tendon, which is essentially a secure platform for smartphone business communications. And it's an application that enables corporations or law firms to um, ensure that all business content flows through an application that that loads that content into a SaaS-based repository. And so ultimately, rather than having to deal with the challenges of Collecting the phones, disseminating the information on the phones, we've now essentially taken the equivalent of index in place with corporate data and we've given that centralized repository to the challenges of all things that are that are phone related. So, from a corporate perspective, they now have custody and control of the business content, certainly for investigations, compliance, audit, e-discovery. Those are all use cases within the organization. In which it would be very helpful to have access to the cell phone content. And then, of course, you know, certainly just the logistics of collecting phones in a remote world and managing that content as well as ensuring that the employees privacy is protected in relation to their personal content. I think is going to continue to become an evolving challenge. And so it was interesting for me to see this new technology come into the space that's attempting to kind of address that problem.
1: Mandy, you've hinted a few times about the ability to use endpoint search and specifically x1's distributed discovery software you recently co-authored a blog with x1 that talked about the use of this and of course for those that aren't familiar uh, that distributed search just basically means that you can search the information wherever it is within the corporate network so this is a this doesn't require you to collect it it indexes it in place preserves it in place and, and then facilitates searching in place to allow you to see uh, the results of that prior to collecting and actually incurring the cost of putting it into and e-discovery tool. I noted as well that you were quoted in a relativity blog that discussed the need for the software, particularly in light of the COVID pandemic, because it facilitated, you know, there's no touching there, there's no social distancing needed, you're just dealing with data and that distributed search. Tell us a little bit, get specific if you don't mind, about how you leverage this in your e-discovery workflows to support your proportionality analysis and how you go about doing doing your projects as as you're looking at this tool as one of the tools in your toolkit?
2: Well, there's two use cases. In the context of our, our early evaluation and proportionality analysis, one of the challenges that we had previously was in order to understand the story that the data told, you had to collect and process and look at that data to determine that. Index in Place is really a game changer because ultimately now we have insight into the data as it exists within the corporate environment. And so, in relation to doing our evaluation around custodians and data sources, we can now also look at the data without going through that collection or processing effort as a means to either. vet what we're hearing from the custodians uh, to also perform sampling to support inclusionary or exclusionary negotiation strategies. And then, of course, we can also use it to kind of look at analytics and to construct the story. So, that's 1 use case where we have incredible value. The 2nd area, which is the area you touched on is just all of the logistical challenges that we're dealing with right now. The content exists within the corporate environment. So, the fact that for decades, we've duplicated it, moved it outside of the environment. Processed it so to get it to a place where we can use it seems like a lot of extra work when inherently it exists in electronic format to begin with. So, with this tool in place. Data is indexed automatically, you can use it for not only preservation, but index and search. So certainly anything around doing investigative type things can be much easily supported. And then, of course, collection, which could be your standard collection or targeted collection and export to either relativity with whom they have a partnership or whatever other review platform you happen to be working with. So, from a standpoint of the number of use cases within an organization where they want to take a peek within their data, um, as you know, it's not only e-discovery, it's also information governance, it's PII, it's ROT, it's also doing remediation or disposition type projects. And so I think we're going to see a huge increase in index in place technologies as a replacement to some of the more traditional workflows that we've seen. And one last point I'll mention. The cost and time associated with getting your hands on the data by being able to bypass the standard workflow with collect and process and get it ready for review is really a significant cost from a standpoint of saving money in your discovery spend.
1: In your interview with Doug Austin of eDiscovery Today, you, you also noted that, quote, conducted correctly Keyword search can still be a viable, transparent, and defensible process for companies looking to reduce the volume and expense of review, end quote. What do you see progressive teams doing to really leverage search in that transparent, defensible, viable way that you mentioned to Doug?
2: Well, I think search terms have kind of gotten a bad rap in our industry, <laughs> you know, the is there are a lot of instances where they're not really being deployed properly. I mean, the science, search is a science and it's a discipline, just like the practice of law is a discipline. And so often I think search terms in the hands of people that don't necessarily have that prerequisite knowledge can present um, unpredictable or undesirable results. You know, certainly we continue to see a lot of disputes around single search terms or phrases that don't have any context to your earlier point around the language that coalesces in the document and so ultimately those search terms will render a data set that has very little precision and far too great recall from a standpoint of false false positives if you will so i think that at a high level search terms can be a very valuable tool in your toolbox but it requires expertise to do it well. So I think legal teams that are able to learn some of these linguistic methodologies and sound search principles is really gonna be valuable from a standpoint of using those effectively. And keep in mind, it's not a replacement for all the other great technology that we have around analytics and accelerating review, but conducted correctly, excuse me, keyword search is still a viable, transparent and defensible process that can reduce the volume and expense of review.
1: So, Mandy, you were, or are currently on uh, a steering committee to draft sections of a George Washington model assessing ESI proportionality, relevance, and burden with, among other folks in the industry, John Rabier. The goal of this project is to create an actual model that allows an assessment of proportionality and a ranking of custodian and data sources against the needs of the case. Can you fill us in on this project, who's involved, what you all are doing, and its status?
2: Well, we're very excited to have the opportunity to participate in this initiative. It actually was based on the conceptual framework that sits behind evidence optics around relevancy, burden, cost, and then, of course, assessment and scoping. Um, So, obviously, it's quite clear that proportionality is a legal principle that we have a very keen interest in. This is being led by the George Washington Complex Litigation Center. We have volunteer participation currently from about 50 participants, which includes some uh, leading in-house and outside lawyers, as well as e-discovery experts. Our steering committee um, has members both from the bench, as well as the ABA litigation incoming chair. And we have four teams that are currently developing guidelines that are really intended for the masses. They're intended to provide Instruction to lawyers and judges who are outside of the e discovery bubble so that they have a framework or approach to address trying to uh, perform proportionate discovery. Once we complete the guidelines, um, it's going to go through an editorial review, of course, approval from the steering committee, and then those will be published. There'll be a bench and bar event in March where the findings will be provided. And I think downstream there are some. ideas around offering CLE to the legal community, as well as education to the bench, with a secondary round of documents being prepared that actually get into more detail around best practices in association with this framework.
1: So, Mandy, if you were going to sit down with a general counsel that has control over a litigation portfolio, and they were to look and say, Mandy, listen, we're in uncertain economic times. Our litigation costs right now they're relatively sporadic. Sometimes I need to turn on the tap. I need more discovery support and then sometimes I'm able to turn off the tap and actually save a little bit of money. I'm really concerned as an in house counsel about being nimble, efficient and automating where I can. If you were in my position, if you were in house at, at this corporation. What would you do on day one of the company? What's the first thing that you would assess or do or perform to ensure that my e-discovery legal dollars are being spent mindfully and without waste?
2: Well, I would want to, set, I would want to assess the environment to understand what the needs look like, but, but certainly I would want to try to deploy some sort of technology approach with standardized processes and procedures to try to manage spend and reduce costs. Obviously, I would want to incorporate proportionality as a mechanism to streamline the discovery process. And I think the other area where there's often a gap is that. Creating a consistent defensible process that can be applied across the entire litigation portfolio. And also coming up with standardized techniques that can be mandated to outside counsel from a standpoint of how discovery is approached from a corporate perspective can also lead to considerable cost savings across the corporation's litigation portfolio. And certainly, as I mentioned earlier, um, I think right now, more so than ever, that is of heightened interest in most of corporate America today based on our current economic climate.
1: So can you give us any hints of what's coming down the pike from, from PRISM and what we can expect to see you develop on your proportionality evidence optics tool?
2: We actually are just releasing uh, Evidence Optics Limited Edition, which is a module that addresses data source management in particular. You know, when we went out in the market showing our technology, interestingly enough, we found that um, a lot of corporations, law firms and providers were still struggling with what I'm calling the traveling spreadsheet which is (laughs) managing all things e-discovery and that document moving between the corporation and the law firm and IT and the vendors, and it's not up to date and you don't have the necessary documentation. So this tool is fairly straightforward, but it fills a couple of, of, I think, very important needs. It documents all of the technical requirements relating to preservation, chain of custody, and collection. It also manages everything relating to life cycle management um as a tracking mechanism as the data moves through discovery and it generates various automated reports to team members uh, based on various actions as they're being completed so we intentionally developed this because of feedback that we heard in the market and then we also have a couple of other big picture items that are on our roadmap as far as areas of the product that we want to further develop develop so stay tuned i think in the next to six months you're going to see some other very interesting things come in around uh, what we're doing in relation to cost estimations and things of that nature.
1: So, Mandy, last question. What's one great question that I should have asked you that I didn't?
3: Well, uh, the question that came to mind for me would be what do you think would be the most talked about issue in 2021? So, with that, I really think the hot topic is going to be around the convergence of proportionality and risk. And uh, this is not only based on U.S. litigation requirements, but also impacts European corporations who now have to comply with GDPR privacy regulations. Been following the European Data Protection Supervisor guidelines pretty closely, and they focus squarely on proportionality as a means to target data and mitigate risk. And I thought it was important that they actually stated that the emergence of this proportionality requirement is considered to be one of the most striking developments over the last decade in European data privacy law. So any international corporation, of course, you know, there are many now face an increased risk, both from a regulatory perspective in the normal course of business, as well as risk in the context of US based litigation and governmental investigations. And what I thought was striking were looking at the fines coming out of GDPR, I saw fines that ranged up to $50 million from a standpoint of noncompliance, which, you know, those are, those are considerable numbers. So I think there's a strong consensus, certainly from the people that I've been speaking to, that the privacy requirements that started in other countries, of course, are going to continue to sweep west, as we've seen in California, for example, with CCPA and CPRA, heightening, I think, the U.S. focusing on proportionality in other contexts. So the mitigation of risk from a privacy perspective, I think, is going to converge with other business use cases, including litigation. And proportionality ultimately provides an approach to reduce and target your content, thus lowering your overall potential for risk.
1: Well, Mandy, thanks so much for that. And thanks for being on the show. Really enjoyed our conversation.
3: Yeah, thanks, Clint. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks for joining us on the Lean Discovery Applied Podcast, Season 1, Sitting with the C-Suite. Please rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. You can also visit us online at www.leandiscoveryblog.com where we have additional content and videos of the interviews. Lean Discovery Applied is hosted by Clinton Sanko, e-Discovery Officer of Baker Donaldson. This program is not intended as an endorsement and does not constitute legal advice. Thanks to Baker Donaldson, a leader in innovative legal services, for supporting this podcast. To the guests and to you, the listener. See you next time.